Let's open your Bibles to Isaiah chapter 53. In verses 1 through 3, you're going to find the sorrowing servant. The sorrowing servant, and then another division is the smitten servant, the silent servant, and the satisfied servant. God's divine servant, the sorrowing servant, in verses 1 through 3. The humiliation of Christ comes out in these three verses. Let's read the three, and then we'll come back and talk some, some about them. It says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? For he shall grow up before him as a tender plant, that is, before God, as a tender plant, and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. He is despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows, and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we esteemed him not. This 53rd chapter describes the life and ministry of Jesus. And in verses 1 through 4, we, we see uh, a great deal of that pointed out. But his death is spoken of in verses 5 through 8, and his burial in verse 9, and his resurrection and exaltation in verses 10 through 12. The theme that ties this chapter together is that the innocent servant died in the place of the guilty. And when the theologians speak about the vicarious atonement, that's what they mean, that he died in the place of the guilty. The Bible says he died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We cannot explain everything about the cross of Christ, but this seems very clear that he took the place of guilty sinners when he died on the cross and paid the full price for our salvation. Not just a down payment, but he paid the full price of our salvation. The Bible says, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins. In whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. Peter says, for as much as you know you were not redeemed with corruptible things as silver and gold from your vain conversation received by tradition from your fathers, but with the precious blood of Christ as of a lamb without blemish and without spot. And it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but he was manifested in these last times for you who by him do believe in God, that raised him up from the dead and gave him glory, that your faith and hope might be in God. Now then, if you look at verse 1, it says, Who hath believed our report, and to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Now the arm of the Lord, there's quite a contrast between the arm of the Lord, which speaks of his mighty power, and what we read as a root out of dry ground in verse 2, and as a root out of dry ground, and there's quite a contrast between these two. The root out of dry ground speaks of his, uh, the image is the image of his humiliation and of his weakness. A little sprig out of dry ground. You don't find it's very powerful or very uh, prosperous or uh, it just grows and you hope it lives. He's seen in that way. That's humiliation and weakness. But the arm of the Lord speaks of his mighty power. Now, when God made the universe, he used his fingers. Psalms 8 verse 3 speaks of the fingers of God. And when he delivered Israel from Egypt, he used his strong hand. He says, by a strong hand, he brought them forth. But to save sinners, he had to bear his mighty arm. In other words, the greatest work that was ever done of deliverance, greater than the creation using his fingers, greater than the, the uh, strong hand that brought Israel out of bondage, he had to save the lost sinners and he had to bear his arm, the very might of his power, because he gave his only begotten son to die on the cross. 
to redeem us. And that would certainly bear the arm of God to give up His own Son. Most of us have children. My son's here tonight. And you know, if you were to think of giving your own son, even for the sake of, it says, for scarcely will a man die for a righteous man, yet peradventure will a man die for, for a good man. But he says, but God, listen, but God commendeth His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So you have the other side of the extreme of what God will do to save us. And yet, there are still people that refuse to believe. The Bible speaks of God's power in the gospel. It's not only His power in sending Christ down to this earth, born of a woman, and Jesus dying on His death on the cross to redeem us. And the Bible says that concerning Christ's death on the cross, that God, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to Himself. But it's not only that. But we find that the gospel itself is the power of God unto salvation. That the very message of this uh, incarnation and Christ's life and His death and His burial and His resurrection, the gospel, His death, burial, and resurrection, is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth. You know, nowadays, there are many pulpits that think they have to prop up the gospel with certain programs or whatever they can do to boost it and make it powerful enough to save sinners. It doesn't need any props. The Word of God doesn't need anyone to support it. The Bible says the Word of God is quick and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of the soul and spirit of the joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. So you don't have to prop up God's Word. You don't have to prop up the Gospel. The Gospel is God's power to to everyone that will believe. And when you preach Christ's death and burial and resurrection, and that He was delivered for our offenses, raised again for our justification, and a poor lost sinner out there says, He died for me, and I want to receive Him as my Savior. And He does. Then He's saved. Now in verse 2 says, For He shall grow up before Him as a tender plant, and as a root out of dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. When we shall see Him, there is no beauty that we should desire Him. Now here we find the servant. The servant is God, and yet he becomes human, and he grows up. This servant, this is God's divine servant, and the servant is God, manifest in the flesh, which is Christ. But uh, we find that he grows up as a child. Isaiah 9, 6 says, Unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The child born speaks of his humanity. The son given speaks of his deity. And in writing about Israel's future, Isaiah has already used the image of a tree. The Messiah is a branch of the Lord. That's a tree. The remnant is like the stump of trees chopped down. In Isaiah 6, verse 13. The proud nations will be hewn down like trees, but out of David's seemingly seemingly dead stump, the rod of Jesse will come. Because Christ is God. He is the root of David. Because he is man, and he is the offspring of David, because he is God. He is the root and offspring of David. Because Jesus Christ is God, he is the root of David, and because he is man, he is the offspring of David. You find that in the very last chapter of the Bible. Let me read it for you. In verse 16, it says, I, I Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you in these things in the churches. I am the root of David, root and the offspring of David, and the bright and morning star. 
as the root of David, he is Jesus Christ, God manifest in the flesh. As the offspring of David, he is the man, Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 1, verses 3 and 4 says, He was made of the seed of David according to the flesh. And he's declared to be the Son of God with power according to the Spirit of holiness. Now, if you look at the word again, you'll find that as a root out of dry ground, Israel was not a paradise when Jesus was born. Politically and spiritually, it was a wilderness or a dry ground. Remember, it was some 400 years of dryness without any revelation from God when Jesus came. And he did not come as a tree, but as a tender plant. Jesus came as a tender plant. He was born as a babe. He was born and laid in Bethlehem's manger. And he grew up in a carpenter shop in despised Nazareth. Remember the disciples said, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? That's what they thought of it. Can any good thing? And we find that he hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. What is it saying? Though Jesus attracted great crowds, it was not his physical attraction that brought men to him. Nothing about his physical appearance made him any different than any other Jewish man. Jesus was a man, and he was a Jew. He had no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. That's why we don't even have, there's been a lot of attempts to paint pictures of Jesus and all kinds of things that men imagine what he looked like and there's no description given about his earthly uh, form except some of the things that we're pointing out like this in prophecy and then his appearance on the Mount of Transfiguration which when he uh, uh, the Bible says that he took with him Peter, James and John he was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment was white as the light so he was transfigured from within to without then we have John's revelation in the, in the book of Revelation, his revelation of Christ there, and description of Christ glorified. And you read that and it will really show you the glorified Christ. But nothing is said about his human appearance. Very little is said. And so all of these pictures may or may not look something like Jesus. We suppose that some of them do and have drawn upon the Jewish uh, culture of that day and presented him as somewhat like we see him. But as far as the beauty, it was from within. And by the way, do you know that's where anyone's beauty really is? We look at folks around about us and we look at each other. You say, my, that's a handsome person. They may be handsome as far as outward appearance is concerned. But here's another person that may, as far as appearance is concerned, not look quite as well to our eye, appealing to our eye, but they may have a heart of gold and they may just really have the love of God and the tenderness and kindness. And When they go about, you can tell, uh, you can tell how they act and how they treat people and, and how they show their concern about other folks that inside the, the, the person is coming out. And you know, the Bible teaches that that's what we ought to be. The real person is not what you see here of any of us, but the real person is what we are and feel and do and care about other folks from the inside. Well, anyway, we find that uh, modern society tries to look at the outside, the physical beauty, but it's good to remember that Jesus succeeded without it. And once they understood what he demanded of them, how most people did they... How did most people treat this servant of God? 
the way they treated him in verse 3 is despised. Notice the present tense. He is despised and rejected of men. Isaiah wrote this some 700 years before Jesus. And there's no doubt but what it speaks of Christ in this passage of Scripture. Because we find seven New Testament references from this 53rd chapter of Isaiah to the person of Christ himself. And there are over 85. Isaiah 53 is quoted or referred to at least 85 times in the New Testament. It's either quoted or referred to. At least 85 times, and then how can anyone doubt but what the context shows that the person of Christ is in view? And so he, when Isaiah said, he is despised and rejected of men, he was saying that as if he is, when the time came, when Jesus came, he is despised and rejected of men. Though he wrote this 700 years before Christ. That's the way he was treated. He was treated like a slave. They put a price on him of 30 pieces of silver. If you'll remember, Zechariah prophesied that, that he would be 30, that they would sell him for 30 pieces of silver. The price of him whom they, the children of Israel, did value is quoted in the New Testament. He did not represent the things that were important to men. They were ashamed of him because he didn't represent what they liked many times. Like wealth, he could care less. The Bible says the rich shall not give more, the poor shall not give any less than the price of redemption in the Old Testament. The Bible says God is no respecter of persons. Jesus spoke of the, the woman that put in two mice and she says uh, that she's put in more than they all. All the wealthy put in all of their abundance into the treasure. So Jesus was not as concerned about that or social prestige or reputation or being served. By others, you know the Bible says that Jesus was among you, is among us as one that serveth himself, and he's rejected today for the same reasons. If you look at verses four through six, now you'll see the smitten servant, how he was smitten. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, the chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. Verse 6 says, All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way, and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. This is the heart of this passage of Scripture. And it presents the heart of the gospel message, Christ's death. The fact this servant was smitten. The innocent servant is dying as a sacrifice for sin. This message was at the heart of Israel's religious system. In the Old Testament, the innocent animal sacrifice was dying for the guilty sinner. You read the book of Leviticus, and especially the 16th chapter on the Day of Atonement, and you'll find that the innocent animal had to sacrifice dying for guilty, the guilty. And there's more to be said about that as we approach the thought of the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. So Jesus bore our sins on the cross. First Peter 2 verse 24. He bore our sins on the cross. But he also identified with the consequences of Adam's sin when he ministered to needy people. Because Matthew chapter 8 and verses 14 through 17 applies Isaiah 54 
of 53 verse 4. Now look. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. It applies this scripture to our Lord's healing ministry and not to his atoning death. And every blessing that we have as a Christian and in the Christian life is because of the cross. You say, well, preacher, where do you get that? The Bible says, he that spared not, listen carefully, he that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all. Where did he deliver him up? He delivered him up for us all. How shall he not with him also freely give us all things? So the blessings we enjoy are because of the cross. All those blessings that we hold close to us. The emphasis in verses 4 through 6, I want you to notice, especially in verse uh, 5, it says, He was wounded for our transgression. This emphasis on the personal pronouns, plural pronouns, our griefs, our sorrows, our transgressions, all of these things are spoken of. Look at verses 4 and 5 together. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Verse 5. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes, we, we, the plural pronouns that are given. He did not die because of anything he had done, but he died because of what we had done. He was wounded, which means pierced through. Wounded, that means he's pierced through. His hands and feet were pierced by nails. His side was pierced by a spear. He was crucified, which was not a Jewish form of execution. Capital punishment for the Jews meant stoning. And if they wanted to further humiliate the the victim of their stoning, they could publicly expose the corpse. And this is a practice that Peter related to the crucifixion. On the cross, Jesus Christ was bruised, which means crushed under the crushed under the weight of a burden. What was the burden? What was the weight of the burden? It says in verse six, the Lord hath laid on him or made to meet on him the iniquity of us all. The burden upon Christ as he died upon the cross was Not just my sins, which would be enough. And not just three or four of us, but the sins of the whole world. Not just a few of their sins, but all the sins of all the people of all time rested upon Christ. The Lord hath laid on Him the iniquity of us all. The Bible teaches that the Lord hath made to meet on Him the iniquity of us all. By implication and by imputation. And then God imputes His righteousness to us on the same basis. The Lord makes His righteousness to meet on us. The Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of Saul. In the Old Testament, there were two goats that were offered as a sacrifice. One was a goat that was killed and the blood was taken and presented as the priest was prescribed to do for the sins of, of the nation and the people, all the children of Israel. Then the live goat, there was another goat. And the priest would come and lay his hands upon the head of this live goat like this. And he would confess over the head of that live goat, listen carefully, all the sins and all the iniquities of all the children of Israel. And they would take that goat and lead him away into the wilderness by the hand of a fit or qualified, we shouldn't say, man. 
and let the goat go into the wilderness so that he would never be found. And the man would return, and when he returned, the people considered that the blood sacrifice was to make atonement for their sins, and the fact that in these two goats they made up one sacrifice, that by both of them being the sacrifice for sin, that in doing that, that their sins were taken away because that goat would never be found again that was taken away. So Jesus fulfilled both of the aspects of this sacrifice in that He died and shed His blood to redeem us to God, and in doing so, He took our sins away into a land of forgetfulness so that they'll never be remembered against us anymore forever. That's why John, when he beheld Christ, says, Behold, listen carefully the wording, Behold the Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. The word taketh away means bears away. He bears it away. Not only did he die for it, but he bears it away into a land that it will never be remembered. So when someone asks you where your sins are, they're gone. I don't know where they are. The little children, we used to sing a song, have them come up here. They'd sing the song, Gone, gone, gone. Yes, my sins are gone. Buried in, buried in the deepest sea. And the future, the further statements of that song. So our sins are gone. And they're gone forever. God says they're, they're buried in the depths of the sea. He says He's blotted them out as a thick cloud. He says that as far as the east is from the west, so far have they removed our transgressions from us. And furthermore, he says, their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. That's pretty secure, isn't it? So, now then, if you'll notice, it says, uh, we was crushed under the weight, and that was the burden. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. The Bible says he'd bear our sins. It's like bearing them upon himself. Sin indeed is a burden that grows heavier the longer we resist God. Sin becomes heavier upon us. That's why the longer we sin, the heavier the burden becomes. And when you and I, even as Christians, sin, it becomes a burden. And when we sin, we, if we don't confess it to God, the first thing you know, it gets the best of us and it burdens us down until we confess it. And then when we confess it, we're lighthearted because we know it's under the blood of Christ. Don't carry any sin in our lives that are not confessed. The Bible says if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why carry it around if you can leave it? Why carry a burden that you don't have to carry? Someone said, well, I confess my sin, but I'm not sure that it's gone, that it's forgiven. It's not yours to forgive it, it's yours to confess it. It says, if we, there's something we do, right? If we confess our sins, He, something He does, He is faithful and just. Well, you say, well, I confess mine. Well, God says He'll do His. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. There's no sense coming and praying for forgiveness if you don't believe that God is going to forgive you. Just, well, forget that. Kind of a waste of time. But if you come and ask for forgiveness and you confess it before God and say, God, I have this problem, this sin that is burdening my heart. It's, it's bad. It, it keeps me down and I'm going to leave it because I've asked you to forgive it and I've, I know that you are faithful and just and you leave it there. A lot of us would come and would confess the sin and we'll pick it up and we'll take the same burden away. That's not good, is it? 
If you're going to do that, first first scripture Daryl ever learned. I, I hope he still remembers it. He used to say at Psalm fifty-five twenty-two, he'd say, "Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved." Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. And Peter tells us, casting all your care upon Him, for He careth for you. So Jesus had that burden upon Him. Now let's go on. He was chastised, verse 5. The chastisement of our peace was upon Him. And He was given many stripes. And yet that punishment brought us peace and healing. The only way that a lawbreaker can be at peace with the law is to suffer the punishment that the law demands. And Jesus took the punishment of all that the law demanded, though he perfectly kept the law, yet he suffered the punishment of the law that belonged to us. See, Jesus didn't have anything coming to him in the way of punishment. He had not broken the law. He says, I came not to, to destroy the law, but to fulfill it. The Bible says, For what the law could not do, and that was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, as offering for sin, condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. So we fulfill the law by walking after Christ in a spiritual way. He kept the law perfectly, and the whipping He under took or suffered was because of our sins and because he took our place we can now have peace with God and we cannot be condemned by God's law there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus what does the law do do to us the law condemns us doesn't it but there is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus and then the next two verses that I quoted just a moment ago for what the law could not do and it was weak through the flesh. That's why there's no condemnation. Because what the law could not do, Jesus did. The healing in Isaiah 53.5 refers to the forgiveness of sins, not the healing of the body. Sin is not only like a burden, but it's also like a sickness that only God can cure. And He cures our sicknesses and our sins, our sin sicknesses. Sin is serious because the prophet here calls it transgression, which means rebellion against God. In other words, daring to cross the line that God has drawn. God has drawn a line and says, don't cross this line. He also calls it iniquity, which refers to the crookedness of our sinful nature. In other words, we're sinners by choice and by nature. We're not only transgressors of God's law, but we are crooked and we have a sinful nature. We're like sheep. We're born with a nature that prompts us to go astray. And the Bible says, all we hear, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way and the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Sheep are foolish, aren't they? We decide that we're like foolish sheep. We decide to go our own way. The Bible says, by nature, we're born children of wrath. And Ephesians 2, we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. And by choice, we've become children of disobedience. Now, under the law, the sheep died for the shepherd. But under grace, the good shepherd died for the sheep. And we're under grace. We're not under the law. So the good shepherd died for the sheep. Now, then, look at verses 7 through 9. We'll find the silent servant. Verses 7 through 9. 
He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, the silent servant. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before shears is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. It's stated again. He opened not his mouth. The silent servant. He was taken from prison and from judgment, and who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. The silent servant. Now, a servant is not permitted to talk back. If you have a servant and he talks back to you, you won't keep him very long. If you have someone that's in your employment and, and every time you tell him to do something, he says, well, I don't want to do that. You just, and you know, talks back to you and will not obey orders or do anything he's told to do. He won't be a, an employee very long. He or she must be must submit to the will of the master or mistress. We are all men and women, boys and girls, servants of God, and we should submit to to God. But Jesus Christ was the silent servant who set set us a perfect example of how to act. He was silent before those who accused him, who afflicted him. He was silent before Caiaphas, the high priest. The chief priests and the elders, he was silent before Pilate, he was silent before Herod Antipas. He did not speak when the soldiers mocked him and beat him. And this was what impressed the Ethiopian treasure as he read the passage in Isaiah and went on his way. Remembering the book of Acts chapter 8, he was going on his way and he was reading from the prophet Isaiah. And if you turn to the book of Acts chapter 8, you'll find it. It says in verse 32, the place of the scripture which he read was this. He was led as a sheep to the slaughter, and like a lamb dumb before his shearer, so he opened not his mouth. That's the very same, same thing. And in his humiliation, his judgment was taken away, and who shall declare his generation? For his life is taken from the earth. And the eunuch answered Philip and said, I pray thee, of whom speaketh the prophet this, of himself or some other man? Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture, and preached unto him Jesus. Now, if Philip, if God in the New Testament and under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit said that, and Philip said he began at the same scripture in Isaiah 53 and preached unto him Jesus, certainly Isaiah had Jesus in mind. If we consider that both the Old and the New Testament were divinely inspired, he had it in mind. Isaiah 53:7 speaks of his silence under suffering. And of his silence when illegally tried and condemned to death. It says in verse 8, he was taken from prison and from judgment. In today's courts, a person cannot be found guilty of terrible crimes. Can be found guilty of terrible crimes. But if he can be proved that something was illegal in that trial, then the case has to be tried again. When a person's found guilty of a, of a crime today, if he can prove that this trial was not a legal trial, then he has a... Another opportunity. And everything about Christ's trial was illegal. Everything about it. The nighttime meeting, the uh, thing that they asked for, to uh, the way that they wanted to put Jesus to death by, their, by the Roman law instead of the Jews. Remember the Jews' law was that of, to uh, execute someone. It was by stoning. But they wanted the Romans to do it. But they wanted to be responsible for bringing it about. But they wanted someone else to take the responsibility of doing it. See how people were? It was illegal. They said, they admitted, they said, it is not lawful for us to put any man to death. 
And it was not lawful for them to put Christ to death. Everything about his trial was illegal. And yet Jesus said, The cup which my Father hath given me, shall I not drink of it? Jesus knew it was illegal, but he said, I'm going to drink of this cup. In verse 7, it's also seen that Jesus is compared to a lamb. Look, it says, He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter. A lamb which is one of the frequent symbols of the Savior in Scripture, the Lamb. We've already quoted, Behold, a Lamb of God, which taketh away the sin of the world. A Lamb died for each Jewish household at the Passover. Remember at the Passover? When they first instituted the Passover, it was by a Lamb that they were delivered out of Egypt. So they were delivered by the blood of the Lamb and by the power of God. You and I are delivered by blood and by power. We're delivered by the blood of Christ and by the power of God that brings us to accept that blood. Because God's power moves upon us to say, this is sufficient. This will do. The Passover lamb for the, for the children of Israel. Remember, the firstborn in the house was to be spared if they took that Passover lamb and they sprinkled the lintel and the side post with the blood of that, out of that basin of that sacrificed lamb. Can you imagine the firstborn of that house? That son or daughter, the firstborn of that house, the firstborn, and you find that the Passover lamb was 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 uh, sacrificed and the blood was sprinkled there. What happened? The firstborn of the house would be spared if that blood was upon the lintel and the side post. But suppose one son in there says, "Well, I know, Dad, you put the blood out there, but I'm not sure. I'm not, you know you doubt it. You doubt it's going to do it." Would the Passover blood not be effective? Because this son in there doubted, this person in there doubted that it was uh, sufficient. Would this not be sufficient? His doubt didn't make the difference. The blood made the difference. And on the other hand, you might have a son in that house that says, Oh, this is sufficient for me because I know the blood is applied and I'm alright. Everything's safe and secure. So every child of God, every man, woman, boy, and girl, you can have two ways of looking at your salvation. You can rest assured in the blood of Christ, or you can sit there and doubt it. Either way. Just however you want to handle it. Because the, the, the firstborn of the house did not die, regardless of whether the individual had emotional feelings about it one way or another. The firstborn of that house was protected because of the blood, and that only. And the faith was that of applying the blood. That's where the faith came in. They believed that God would do it. And the hyssop is symbolical of our faith. And we by faith have received Christ. And that's the way we apply the blood of Christ. So it's compared to a lamb. Twenty-eight times in the book of Revelation, Jesus is referred to as the lamb. And since Jesus was crucified with criminals, it was logical that his dead body be left unburied. Look here. But we find that it wasn't in God's plan. The burial of Christ is as much a part of the gospel as his death. The Bible says Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and he was buried and rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 1 through 5 tells us that. For the burial is a proof that he actually died. The Roman authorities would not have released the body to Joseph and Nicodemus if the victim were not dead. And we find that it says here, he was taken from prison... And from judgment, 
And who shall declare his generation? For he was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgression of my people was he stricken. And he made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Because he had done no violence, neither was any deceit in his mouth. He made his grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. He died between two thieves. And he died as a sacrifice for our sins. And yet, he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph of Arimathea. And Nicodemus came and they begged the body of Jesus so that they would be able to bury him decently. As far as others were concerned, he could have been left on the cross to let the fowls of the air destroy his body. But as far as God was concerned, it would not happen that way. The last section is 10 through 12. Yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. The prophet now explains the cross from God's point of view. Even though Jesus was crucified by the hands of wicked men, yet it says it pleased the Lord to bruise him. His death was determined beforehand by God. Peter tells us that in the book of Acts. He says, who was delivered by the determinate counsel, listen carefully, in Acts chapter 2, and the foreknowledge of God you have taken and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. So what is Peter saying? He says, God delivered him, but you took him and you crucified him. So the fact that God predicted and even ordained and even purposed and planned the birth of Christ, uh, the death of Christ, doesn't mean that the wicked man that performed the wicked deed were not guilty of crucifying Christ. They, you have taken, Peter says, and with wicked hands have crucified and slain. It was determined before by God. You read Acts 2, verse 22 and 23. And by the way, Jesus was not a martyr. Now, watch his death an accident. He was a sacrifice for the sins of the world. It was God's purpose and plan. Some people think he was caught up in the crowd and it happened. It happened because God permitted it. Jesus said, I could call legions of angels to my rescue. He didn't have to die. He could have ascended back to heaven before he, he was buried and resurrected. The same as after he was crucified and buried and resurrected. He could have just at any time in his life said, I'm going back to the Father. In John 17, he says, Father, glorify thyself with thy, the glory of uh, thy son with the glory that he had with thee before the world was. And he could have gone back to glory in the clouds. But he didn't do that. He did not remain dead. Look at verse 10 again. When thou shalt make his soul an offering for sin, he shall see his seed. When his soul was made an offering for sin, it says, he shall see his seed, he shall prolong his days, and the pleasure of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. What does that mean? It means that the servant was resurrected to live forever. And in his resurrection, he triumphed over every enemy and claimed the spoils of victory. The Bible tells us that he became victorious over all. In the book of Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 8, it says this, Wherefore he saith, when he ascended upon high, he led captivity captive and gave gifts unto men. He became victorious. And because of this, God, uh, the fact that he died for our sins... And he rose again, God's, and he became obedient to death. God hath highly exalted him, and given him a name which is above every name. His name is above the angels, 
Gabriel and Michael, his name is above all uh, of the heavenly uh, creatures, giving him a name which is above every name, that every knee should bow, things in heaven, things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Another part of his reward is found in the statement, he shall see his seed. In other words, he's going to have many children that are his because of his uh, death on the cross. Many spiritual children. When Jesus died, remember, there were two thieves, one on either side, and one cried out, Lord, remember me when thou comest into thy kingdom. And Jesus said, Today shalt thou be with me in paradise. What was he saying? He was saying that this is the first trophy of blood redemption and there will be many more saved because of my death on the cross. And he was the first one, that repentant thief. The servant's work on the cross brought satisfaction. Look at verse 11. It says, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. God shall see. See, it says in verse 10, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. In verse 11 it says, He shall see the travail of his soul. In in his death on the cross, God saw the travail of his soul and what? And shall be satisfied. God is satisfied with the death of Christ on the cross. To begin with, Jesus satisfied the heart of the Father. Because he says, I do always those things that please the Father. But the Heavenly Father did not find enjoyment in seeing His beloved Son suffer. For the Father is not pleased with the death of the wicked, let alone the death of the righteous Son of God. But the Father was pleased that His Son's obedience accomplished the redemption that He had planned from eternity. What pleased the Father is that the Son, a part of Himself, was willing to carry out the Father's will and give Himself a sacrifice on the cross to redeem us to God. Can greater love be expected for you and I? To be commended to you and I. It says, It pleased the Lord to bruise him. Look in verse 10. Verse 11, He shall see the travail of his soul and shall be satisfied. Now that didn't... Let me try to put it in more simple terms. God the Father was not happy that He was bruised, but He was pleased that the Son was willing to carry out the wonderful plan of redemption before the foundation of the world. Because the Bible says, the Lamb that was slain from before the foundation of the world, that it was in God Almighty's plan to, to redeem men to Himself by the shed blood of His only begotten Son and by His death on the cross. And He had the highest and the most noble purpose and plan that could ever be devised. God could not send an angel and did not. God could not choose an ordinary man because it was impossible for a sinful man to redeem 